0: Enemies in Blue, Police and Power in America by Christian Williams. This is the second of two parts of Chapter 6, entitled Police Autonomy and Blue Power. No justice, no police. In July 1966, New York supplied the first real test to this newfound power. Mayor John Lindsay made good on one of his campaign promises, restructuring the city's police complaint board to include a civilian majority. The Police Benevolent Association immediately and vigorously attacked this plan, eventually forcing the issue to the ballot. The PBA then sponsored an extensive ad campaign, and individual officers put anti-review board signs on their cars, distributed literature, and harassed those who campaigned in favor of the board, often while on duty. The anti-review board propaganda openly appealed to public anxieties about civil unrest and crime. Two issues in the context of the time, with obvious racial overtones. One poster showed a young girl at the entrance to a subway. Its text read, quote, The civilian review board must be stopped. Her life, your life, may depend on it. Unquote. Another poster showed a riot torn street cluttered with rubble and lined with damaged storefronts. The caption stated, quote, This is the aftermath of a riot in a city that had a civilian review board. An August 18, 1966 reporter editorial titled License to Riot worked from the same theme. Did you see the pictures of those Cleveland riots of Negro thieves running wild in and out of wrecked establishments, arms loaded? And did you see the cops standing by, idly watching the debauchery? That was the result of a police review board. As the November election approached, police tactics became more brazen. The PBA and their supporters packed a meeting about the review board, chaired by Councilman Theodore S. Weiss. Former FBI agent William Turner described the scene, Thousands of off-duty policemen in uniform, with service revolvers strapped on and wearing PBA buttons, the buttons were later removed at the request of the police commissioner, tightly ringed City Hall and packed its quarters. Many carried signs with such slogans as, What about civil rights for cops? And, Don't let the Reds frame the police. Adding to the spectacle were dozens of American Nazis and John Birch Society members toting American flags and shouting encouragement to the police. The New York Review Board was defeated by a 2-to-1 margin, 1,313,161 to 765,468. Elsewhere, during the same period, similar battles were fought more quietly, with police associations convincing city councils or mayors to refuse proposals for review boards, sometimes even dismantling existing boards. Such was the story in Los Angeles, Denver, Cincinnati, Seattle, Detroit, Newark, San Diego, Hartford, Baltimore, San Francisco, and Philadelphia. But it is worth noting that the police were not univocal in their opposition to civilian review. In many cases, associations of black officers openly favored the review proposals. In New York, when one such group, the Guardians, released a statement expressing their support of the mayor's proposal, a PBA spokesman protested, quote, They put their color before their duties and their oath as policemen, unquote. It seems that the PBA saw its own political agenda as determining the scope and content of official police duty. This view was given a fuller expression in August 1968, when PBA president John Cassess issued his own orders concerning police behavior during demonstrations. Cassess instructed PBA members, quote, If a superior tells a man to ignore a violation of the law, the policeman will take action notwithstanding that order, When the PBA finally published its full guidelines, they turned out to be more bark than bite, as they mostly just paraphrased existing laws and policies. But the episode demonstrated something of the PBA's aims. In particular, it suggested an emerging system of dual power within police agencies, with commanders and union leaders sometimes sharing and sometimes competing for control. This situation was a natural outgrowth of earlier struggles for departmental autonomy, like that against the civilian review board. In the course of these conflicts, the political ambitions of police became more aggressive, they not only sought to insulate themselves from all outside control, but also wanted to exercise control over other areas of the government and public policy. Henry Wise, the lawyer for the Patrolman's Benevolent Association, was very optimistic about the organization's potential. Quote, We could elect governors or at least knock them off. I've told them, the police, if you get out and organize, you could become one of the strongest political units in the Commonwealth. Unquote. By the end of the 1960s, the trajectory of these developments was clear, and elites started to worry. The New York Times opined, quote, A city cannot be ruled by its police force any more than a free nation can be ruled by its military establishment. Unquote. The police, both in their departments and in their unions, were coming to represent a force that could rival the civil authorities. In 1968, Boston Mayor Kevin White confessed, quote, Are the police governable? Yes. Do I control the police right now? No." Unquote. In 1972, LA City Administrative Officer C. Irwin Piper said FIPO had, quote, more political clout than any other group in city government, Unquote. Unfortunately, the period of police militancy has outlasted many of the social conditions that produced its rise, and police activism continues to have major political consequences. In 1992, when New York Mayor David Dinkins proposed a Civilian Review Committee, the PBA mounted a protest-cum-riot, which Acting Commissioner Raymond Kelly described as, quote, unruly, mean-spirited, and perhaps criminal, unquote. According to Kelly's report, 10,000 off-duty cops took over the steps of City Hall, blocked traffic on the Brooklyn Bridge, damaged property, and assaulted passersby. The response of the on-duty officers was lethargic at best. Several officers, including one captain and two sergeants, failed to hold police lines, and a uniformed officer, Michael P. Abitable, waved protesters through the police barricades while shouting racial slurs. Police Chief David W. Scott later said, quote, I'm disappointed in the fact that police officers would violate the law, unquote. The demonstration carried obvious racial overtones. Signs read, quote, Dinkins, we know your true color, yellow-bellied, unquote. And, quote, Dear Mayor, have you hugged a drug dealer today, unquote. T-shirts urged, quote, Dinkins must go, unquote. And demonstrators chanted, quote, The mayor's on crack, unquote. And, no justice, no police. Kelly's report suggests that the demonstration was self-defeating, as, quote, The inability of the on-duty personnel assigned to police the demonstration has raised serious questions about the department's willingness and ability to police itself." I would actually say that it answered those questions, but the disagreement is academic. The demonstration had greater practical consequences, helping to launch the candidacy of Rudolph Giuliani. Giuliani, who spoke at the rally, was elected mayor following Dinkins and immediately set about expanding police power. In retrospect, the September 16th rally has all the flavor of a municipal level coup. Police activism, especially in the guise of union activity, remains somewhat perplexing. The historical development is clear enough, but politically it is troublesome, especially for the left. The whole issue presents a nest of paradoxes. The police have unionized and struck, but continue in their role as strikebreakers. They have pitted themselves against their bosses and the government, but represent a threat to democracy rather than an expression of it. They have resisted the authority for the sake of authoritarian aims, have broken laws in the name of law and order, and have demanded rights that they constantly deny to others. This situation is sometimes thought to create a bind for those who both support the rights of workers and demand that police be accountable to the community. But the dilemma here is illusory. The demands of solidarity, ethical solidarity, are with the oppressed and against the police. Working people cannot afford to extend solidarity to the police, and we cannot let the reactionary goals of police unions restrain us in our attacks on injustice. Confusion in this matter represents a set of related misconceptions. These can be resolved by clearly examining the class status of police and the nature of their organizations. Wage slaves and overseers. The class position of police is complex and even contradictory. Individual officers may consider themselves working class, for any of a variety of reasons. First there's the fact that, even after the period of professionalization, most officers are still drawn from working class backgrounds. There's also the persistent sense that, regardless of income, the job has little social status attached to it. And finally, there's the nature of the work itself. After all, police work is often physical, sometimes dirty, involves shift work, and brings officers into contact with undesirable elements of society." The police have certainly faced their share of uncomfortable and unfair working conditions. In the 19th century, police received low pay, unless one counts graft, worked long shifts, were given no vacations, enjoyed little job security, and had no guarantee of income if they were injured or of support for their families if they were killed. Such standards are appalling for certain, but most workers were no better off. In the 20th century, the pressures of bureaucratization and professionalization were often resented by the officers at the lowest levels. Bureaucratization increased discipline, eliminated political patronage and protection, and supported rule-bound prescriptions for police action. Professionalization represented, from the perspective of the old-school cops, an unnecessary intrusion of elitist organizational goals at the expense of a traditional hard-nosed approach. Both reform movements created structural tensions within the police departments that later motivated the drive toward unionization. But the proletarian aspects of policing are only half the equation. Though individually they receive just a meager portion of capitalism's benefits, The police represent both the interests and the power of the ruling class. Like managers, police control those who do the work, and they actively maintain the conditions that allow for profitable exploitation. The police thus occupy a dual position as workers and overseers, but this is not a fatal contradiction. A worker can be made to discern his own interests, apart from the interests of the working class as a whole. This is the nature of the so-called middle class which is really a section of the working class bought off by the capitalists to manage their affairs. Class status in this regard is determined neither by income nor by ownership, but by power relations. Quote, Since the authority and expertise of the middle ranks in the capitalist corporation represent an unavoidable delegation of responsibility, the position of such functionaries may best be judged by their relation to the power and wealth that commands them from above, and to the mass of labor beneath them, which they in turn help to control, command, and organize." Unquote. The peculiar distinction of this middle stratum is that its members share in both the power and rewards of the upper classes, and in the alienation of the workers they control. This basic fact requires elites to treat police differently than other workers, seeking through ideology and material incentives to separate them from the mass of workers, in the labor movement especially. Tying the interests of the police to those of capitalism and the state. This trick is accomplished through peculiar means, using what is ostensibly a labor organization, the police union. Police unions aren't unions. The status of police unions and their relationship to the labor movement as a whole has always been troublesome. When the NYPD challenged the legality of the Tr- Patrolmen's Benevolent Association in 1951, The court ruled that the PBA could organize police and could negotiate contracts precisely because it was not a union. According to the court, the police could join associations like the PBA and FOP, but not any organization that had either non-police leadership or affiliation with non-police unions. This ruling represented something of a compromised position, seeking both to preserve the neutrality of police action against strikes and to respect the officer's right to free association. As legal reasoning goes, that's not very impressive. New York City Police Commissioner Stephen P. Kennedy, who strongly resisted the PBA's demands for recognition in the late 1950s, argued that the distinction between an independent association and a union was meaningless. Quote, when an organization acts like a union, talks like a union, makes demands like a union, and conducts itself like a union, it cannot be heard to say that it is not a union, But the legal status of police associations is at most a secondary matter. The practical effect of the ruling was to privilege the PBAs and FOPs over the Teamsters and AFSCME. Police managers were then quick to recognize, in some cases to create, associations, especially when facing a Teamsters organizing drive. The associations gave police management a means of establishing agreed-upon conditions while still discouraging autonomous rank-and-file action and solidarity with other workers. Police associations thus developed in relative isolation from the rest of the labor movement while building close ties with the command hierarchy within the departments. The fact, This fact points to two related reasons why police unions are not legitimate labor unions. First, as is discussed above, the police are clearly part of the managerial machinery of capitalism. Their status as workers is therefore problematic. Second, the agendas of police unions mostly reflect the interests of the institution, the police department, rather than those of the working class. When the PBA organized in New York, collective bargaining rights were traded for no-strike agreements and a bar from affiliating with other unions. During the same period, police unions around the country were defecting from AFSCME to form police-only locals. Almost 20 years later, in 1970, the NYPBA took this dissociation further than the law required, moving to break parity with other city employees, including firefighters, corrections deputies, and sanitation workers. This is telling, and not just because it shows the lack of solidarity between police associations and the rest of the working class. It indicates that police associations organize more along institutional rather than class lines. That is, they organize police as police, not as workers. The police exhibit an institutional unity that is fundamentally different than the class consciousness underlying union activity. The chief difference is that, despite fissures along race lines, disputes between superiors and subordinates, and interdepartmental rivalries, A sense of shared identity extends to every branch of police organizations and is felt at every level, from the highest commander to the rookie on the beat. This solidarity helps the commanders maintain the loyalty of their troops, and as mentioned before, it also leads cops of all ranks to cover up for each other. Not only do street cops hide one another's mistakes from those above them, but superiors shield subordinates from outside scrutiny. Such managerial complicity reinforces the sense of identity and group cohesion, thus reducing the possibilities for conflict within the department. As the rank and file have become a more vocal and more powerful political constituency, some commanders have extended this strategy in order to share in the benefits of militancy. A savvy commander can secure the loyalty of his troops by participating in their revolt, providing himself with a platform for leadership, and at the same time retaining a militant force prepared to back him up in clashes with civil authorities. Police unions exercise influence over departments in ways other unions can only envy. However, apart from localized, usually individual grievances, the officers and their managers share interests, perspectives, and a sense of identity. In the end, their institutional identification is superior to their class consciousness, to a very large extent. Police departments achieve internal peace by subsuming the interests of both workers and managers to those of the institution. Even economic issues, like wages and hours, become common ground for cops and their bosses. Both want increases in department budgets. The officers, of course, enjoy a higher standard of living as a result, and police administrators can look forward to more funding, larger departments, better morale, and an easier time attracting recruits. For this reason, some scholars describe police contract negotiations as exercises in collusive bargaining. Margaret Levy explains, quote, As the literature on private labor unions so often illustrates, collective bargaining often serves as a device of social control. It channels conflict and sets its terms. But collusive bargaining goes one step further. It enables management and labor negotiations to cooperate actively with each other in order to convince their constituencies of their motives the bargaining teams fight publicly but privately they compromise. By engaging in collusive bargaining, city leaders gain credibility with the public for being tough, gain some assurance of relatively uninterrupted service delivery, and regain some power to make programmatic innovations. Of course, in return they must grant some of the union's demands." Union leaders, meanwhile, put on a similar act for the benefit of their constituency. As a result, they are able to deliver gains to the Union members and retain their positions of influence, all without the risks of genuine conflict. As an example of this collusive approach, Levi cites the relationship between the Fraternal Order of Police and Atlanta Police Chief John Inman. The Chief found the FOP was sympathetic enough to his policies To become a much-needed ally, and the FOP discovered it could gain promotions and respect. However, this alliance also contributed to the racism of the police labor organization." In this way, antagonisms between labor and management become secondary to their common institutional aims. As both press to increase the power, resources, and autonomy of the institution, they form a community of interests, an alliance against the meddling of city officials, or the competing demands of other government agencies. Such an alliance bears the markings of corporatism. Colin Crouch and Ronald Dorn define a corporatist arrangement as, quote, an institutional pattern which involves an explicit or implicit bargain or recurring bargaining between some organ of government and private interest groups, including those promoting ideal interests, causes one element in the bargain being that the groups receive certain institutionalized or ad hoc benefits in return for guarantees by the group's representatives that their members will behave in certain ways considered to be in the public interest." They go on to cite both historical and recent examples. The doctors and lawyers of medieval England as well as the civil engineers and all the other professional groups which got their charters in the 19th century were granted monopoly privileges, the right to decide who should and who should not be allowed to sell certain kinds of services, in exchange for promises to make sure that the professional standards of those who did sell the services, their skills and their morals, were what the public had a right to expect. More modern forms, this time the granting by the state of an ad hoc concession rather than an institutionalized privilege, Include, for instance, the bargains sometimes struck in the 1960s and 1970s in Britain between the British Rail Management, the railway unions, and the government. More state funds for railway modernization, provided that the unions would agree to get their members to accept productivity improvements and changes in work practice." They could also have pointed to, more notoriously, the economic system of fascist Italy. Leaving aside the question of police fascism, corporatist arrangements in policing have taken both the medieval and the modern forms that Crouch and Doerr describe. As the historical comparisons indicate, each phase of police reform has tended toward corporatist arrangements, bureaucratization and professionalization under the medieval model and unionization in a more modern guise. Currently the medieval aspects find an analogy in the relations between police departments and governments wherein bargaining is implicit and the modern are in evidence with the three-party relations between union the departments and the government however with the police the corporatist deal is not between the state and some outside group as it is in Crouch and Dorr's idealized scenario but between various sections of the state specifically it is an agreement between the elected civil authorities the government the police commanders, the department, and the representatives of the rank-and-file officers, the union. This alignment between workers and management is not unique to police-labor relations, but a common feature of many public or semi-public institutions. In the wave of, employee, of public employee unionization in the 1960s, many public service workers, not just cops, began to demand changes in the way their work was organized, and sometimes sought to influence the social conditions that affected their work. But whereas teachers and social workers rallied against discrimination, inequality, and the meager remedies of the great society, the police turned sharply to the right. For example, a major demand of the 1967 Chicago social workers strike was the provision of additional services for clients. Teachers unions frequently demand smaller classes and better material. The police, in contrast, advocate longer prison sentences, fewer safeguards against brutality, and new weaponry. In each case, the workers seek to make common cause with their clients, but the clientele of the various agencies are quite different. Smaller classes benefit both teachers and students. Additional social services are good for the people who receive them and for the people who provide them. But such provisions likely inconvenience taxpayers, other portions of the government, who compete for the funds, and the business and government elites who feel they can surely find better uses for the money and have little sympathy for the public for the plight of public school students and the poor. In the case of the police, these relationships are exactly reversed. The police defend the interests of elites, and it is the poor who are burdened. Thus, the social function of policing provides a permanent basis for the conservative orientation of police unions. In turn, police associations provide a stronghold for the most reactionary aspects of the profession, elements that that the command hierarchy is often at pains to disavow. When the police command cannot, for legal and political reasons, resist demands for civilian oversight, for more diversity in the department, or for redress in particular cases, the union can defend the departmental status quo. Historically, most police associations barred black members, and police in Detroit and St. Louis threatened strikes to keep black people off the force. The police departments accommodated the white officers in various ways, sometimes by refusing to hire black people in other cases by keeping black officers out of uniform, restricting them to black neighborhoods, or barring them from arresting white people. As recently as 1995, a group of black LAPD officers sued the Police Protective League for its role in preserving discrimination on the force, describing the union as a, quote, bastion of white supremacy, unquote. Police unions are also on hand to defend individual officers, whose misbehavior becomes embarrassing to the department and who therefore cannot be protected by their supervisors. For instance, when Officer Doug Erickson was fired for shooting 22 times at a fleeing suspect, the Portland Police Association spent over $100,000 taking the case to arbitration. Erickson was reinstated as a result. The police union represents an extreme of autonomy, protecting officers of the lowest rank from authority both inside and outside the department. This has the effect of distributing some kinds of power toward the bottom of the formal hierarchy. Quote Certainly, if the police chief or police commissioner ignores legislative mandates or other directives from policymakers, he must suffer the consequences, whereas even the rookie patrolman soon learns the art of camouflaging both inefficiency and policy infractions. In this sense, not only does the individual officer acting in an isolated instance make a subjective judgment as to how he should intervene in a particular situation, but when these discretionary judgments are made by officers on a wholesale basis, as they frequently are, it takes on the character of administrative and policy decisions being made by officers at the lowest level of the hierarchy." The careful tension between departmental policy and officer autonomy has its benefits for both the commanders and the line officers. Though police regulations do notoriously little to actually regulate officer conduct, they do provide a layer of plausible deniability between commanders and the routine activities of their troops. That is, the rules help to insulate commanders from responsibility for misconduct, while at the same time police unions defend the rank and file from meaningful discipline. This arrangement allows for the formal appearance of a rigorous command and control while maintaining maximum discretion at the lowest levels of the organization. The command staff can minimize the criticism it faces through the manipulation of formal policies and bureaucratic shuffling, but concessions granted at this level need not affect much of what happens on the street. Of course, discipline does exist, and can be quite stringent when it comes to certain procedural or organizational matters—scheduling, the chain of command, uniforms, budgets, and so on—but both discipline and discretion exist within carefully prescribed bounds, according to the needs and aims of the institution. Discipline fails and discretion is preserved in those areas where it is most convenient for the department that it be so. That is, when the police come into contact with the public. The public cares very little about whether cops are issued light blue or dark blue shirts, whether they stand at attention during roll call, and whether they work 8 or 10 hour shifts, are dispatched in pairs or alone, etc. But these are just the sort of matters over which management exercises the most control. Those elements with which the public is especially concerned, when and how force is used, how the police deal with a noisy but peaceful drunk, the basis on which people are treated with suspicion, these are left to the individual officer's discretion. Here is a convenient rule of thumb. Police will be disciplined when their behavior threatens the smooth operation of the institution. But there is a corollary to this. To the degree that the officers collectively control the department, discipline will be weaker as elites will have to bargain for access to the institution's power. This is one effect of police unionization. Police labor action reminds local governments that they have created for themselves a rival to their own power. Unlike private sector strikes, which threaten the boss's ability to make a profit, public worker strikes threaten the local government's ability to provide services or, in the case of the police, to rule. They work by disrupting the city government's access to the institutions by which it achieves its ends. While a sit-down strike may raise the specter of workers controlling industry, since there is a natural continuum between workers shutting down a plant, occupying it, and running it themselves, analogous actions by the police would fall on a different continuum, and foreshadow less blissful social arrangements. If the police continued to patrol, make arrests, and otherwise conduct surveillance and distribute violence, but do so without direction from the local government, this would amount to a transfer of power from the one institution to the other. It would portend the possibility of direct rule by the police. In 1919 it was thought, clumsily, that this was a threat to be repressed, and such repression has occurred since then, when police excesses create the conditions for unrest or otherwise threaten the status quo. But police ambitions can be permanently repressed if the cops are cannot be permanently repressed if the cops are to continue in their capacity, reliably suppressing the unruly portions of the population. And so, through a long series of reforms and negotiations, a strategy of co-optation developed, and with it emerged the instrument for balancing police loyalty with the demands of a semi-autonomous organization. These instruments are generally called unions, though that misnomer, like so many others in police science, relies on a false analogy to other dissimilar organizations. Police unions provide the means by which the officers can collectively negotiate with the civil authorities, determine together the conditions under which loyalty may be ensured loyalty to police commanders, civil authorities, and the ruling class, respectively. It is not the loyalty of the individual officers that is at stake. They are not freelancers or mercenaries negotiating a fee for service. Rather, it is the loyalty of the institution that the officers collectively, through their union, may not control, but can disable. Interestingly, this not only increases the power and autonomy of the union, but of the entire department relative to the rest of the city government. The officers may, under rare conditions, even use their associations to compete with the civil authorities for control. Such power struggles are generally of short duration, but their effects can be long-lasting. They demonstrate the limit of police loyalty and the threat of mutiny, really the usurpation of the institution, and in so doing they help to set the price for that loyalty. When that price is agreed on, the police again become fully available for the uses to which the ruling class, state authorities, and their own commanders would put them. As police organize, lobby, and strike, It seems that their negotiations have as much to do with the elite's access to and the smooth functioning of the police institution itself as with wages and working conditions. In this, police bargaining resembles less the struggles of exploited workers than the agreements formed between sovereigns and their intermediaries in the creation or expansion of states. In fact, in at least one sense, police associations are best conceived of as semi-autonomous but constitutive parts of the state. The Police Union as a Semi-Autonomous Component of the State The independent organization of police officers has done a great deal to protect both individual cops and whole departments from meaningful oversight. Unionization has thus served to preserve patterns of abuse and discrimination, while at the same time advancing the agenda of law enforcement on the social and political fronts. This development represents, as per William Wesley's analysis of police brutality, the collective usurpation of governmental authority and the means of violence. Quote, this process then results in a transfer in property from the state to the co- colleague group. This, the means of violence, which were originally a property of the state in loan to its law enforcement agent, the police, are in a psychological sense confiscated by the police, to be conceived of as a personal property, to be used at their discretion, But whereas Wesley analyzed police brutality in terms of the informal, psychological, confiscation of authority, union negotiations formalized the officer's claim to partial control of the institution and, by implication, its capacity for violence. Our earlier discussion of police brutality led us to pose a series of questions we are now primed to address. These were, To what degree is violence the property of the state? At what point does the police co-optation of violence challenge the state's monopoly on it? When do the police, in themselves, become a genuine rival of the state? Are they a rival to be used, as in a system of indirect rule, or a rival to be suppressed? Is there a genuine danger of the police becoming the dominant force in society, displacing the civilian authorities? Is this a problem for the ruling class? might such a development under certain conditions be to their favor? These questions suggest another prior question. What is the state? Let us begin with that. It may seem odd to talk about an independent private organization, such as a police association, as a constitutive part of the state. The tendency is to think of the state as a monolithic institution, claiming an exclusive right to the use of force but this conception of state power is overly simple, both in terms of the state's actual operation and in terms of its historical development. Martin J. Smith defines the state as, quote, "...a set of institutions which provide the parameters for political conflict between various interests over the use of resources and the direction of public policy." Unquote. The state is not a unitary organization, but rather a complex network, With components termed the welfare state, the police state, etc. And with extensions identified as the military-industrial complex, the prison-industrial complex, and so on. As the state becomes increasingly differentiated and its power ever more diffuse, its precise edges become difficult to define and the public-private distinction grows hazy. What has sometimes been hailed as a postmodern end to state sovereignty is in reality the modern state reaching maturity, drawing in additional elements, incorporating new sources of influence and legitimacy, and adjusting the balance of power accordingly. Organizations and power networks win influence over the state according to their ability to aid or impede its operation, or to contribute to the aims of other institutional actors. Sometimes this influence will be established through sharp conflicts, and the decisive victory of one faction over another. More usually, however, it will be settled through a process of negotiation and bargaining. The latter is generally preferable, not only because it carries fewer costs than all-out battle, but also because by sharing power the various interests can oftentimes increase the power that is there to be shared. Within these networks, power is not simply wielded instrumentally by the autonomous state over social actors, or conversely by dominant social groups over a neutral or powerless state rather power is to some extent created within these networks it arises out of a relationship of dependence between state and social actors each actor provides something that the other cannot obtain on his own and the power or autonomy of each is hence increased by the relationship in the case of police officers police administrators police departments and police unions This dynamic is at work simultaneously on several levels. Individual officers share in the authority of the department while the department maintains its power through the concerted efforts of its individual members. By joining together in independent associations, the member officers can effectively shape the policies and operations of the department, and can sometimes influence the policies and priorities of the government more broadly. When police unions and administrators make common cause, They can pressure the civil authorities to increase the power, resources, and independence of the department, because, to a certain extent, the civil authorities are always dependent on the cooperation of the police to defend their power and enforce their will. Meanwhile, as the departments become more prominent as institutions, the share of power controlled by administrators and the unions increases proportionately, and the department finds itself well-placed to form alliances with other government agencies. And sometimes private enterprises enhancing the bargaining power of each and in the process departmental administrators and union leaders alike can increase their personal influence this analysis is in keeping with the historical development of the state charles Tilley explains quote because no ruler or ruling coalition had absolute power And because classes outside the ruling coalition always held day-to-day control over a significant share of the resources rulers drew on for war no state escaped the creation of some organizational burdens rulers would have preferred to avoid a second parallel process also generated unintended burdens for the state as rulers created organizations either to make war or to draw the requisites of war from the subject population not only armies and navies, but also tax offices, customs services, treasuries, regional administrations, and armed forces to forward their work lo- among the, civil, the civilian population, they discovered that the organizations themselves developed interests, rights, perquisites, needs, and demands requiring attention on their own." Unquote. Within this theoretical framework, it is possible to briefly reinterpret the history of policing. The use of legitimate violence, which was originally the property of individual slaveholders, heads of households, and various secular and ecclesiastic authorities, was slowly formalized and consolidated. On the local level, this process produced slave patrols and then police. Initially the police were highly dependent on local patrons and served as the instruments of political machines. As the capitalist class and its middle class supporters took control of the government, the police were transformed to a tool of class rule. The destruction of the machines, however, required the creation of formal bureaucracies, which quickly came to develop interests of their own and started to formulate their own demands. The police were the prototypical bureaucracy, and the following wave of professionalization only further decreased their dependence on the municipal administration, while reinforcing the organization's loyalty To the ruling class. The police rebellion came when the lowest-ranking officers reacted against the demands of professionalization while taking advantage of the autonomy it granted. They organized independently and began presenting demands at every level, of administrators, of city and state officials, of legislatures, and of society. Because a strike would disrupt the city government's power and therefore also weaken the state's protection of the ruling class's interests, the rank and file held enough control over the state's coercive apparatus to credibly threaten its access to force, even if they could not fully monopolize it for their own purposes. Even if they could not fully mobilize it for their own purposes. By this telling, the coup of police unionization did not represent a sharp break from the institution's previous development, but instead signaled a new step in the pre-existing pattern, the emergence of the police as social and political actors marked the maturity of the institution. The police have always been thugs, but they have traditionally been thugs in the service of the elites. The, crisis of, the crises of the 1960s produced an outbreak of police hooliganism directed against the citizenry, especially black people, students, and radicals, and a revolt against their own commanders and the civil authorities. The police, in short, became self-conscious political actors, seeking to defend their own interests, advance their own agenda, act under their own authority, and increase their already substantial power. Such a development is very dangerous for a wavering democracy like that of the United States. An uneasy truce has developed between the cops and the civil authorities. Police departments have been granted a great deal of autonomy concerning their policies, procedures, and discipline. This allows for peace between the civil authorities and the police while maintaining a degree of plausible deniability concerning misconduct as long as abuse is directed against suitable targets, racial minorities and the poor. So to answer our earlier questions, to what degree is violence the property of the state? In the United States, the state has increasingly exercised monopolistic control over legitimate violence, especially since the early 19th century. However, given the networked nature of power relations constituting the state, the means of violence have always been invested in some particular institution or set of institutions that carried, to a greater or lesser degree, the potential for independent action. At what point does the police co-optation of violence challenge the state's monopoly? When do the police, in themselves, become a genuine rival of the state? Are they a rival to be used as in a system of indirect rule, or a rival to be suppressed. Given their unique bargaining positions, only the military can compete with the cops potential for organized violence, the possibility of police dominance of the government cannot be discounted. So far they have not achieved permanent ascendancy in any city and nationally their influence has been rather limited. On the other hand, since their inception the police have been increasingly central to any power network that succeeds in controlling local government and there's no indication that this trend is being reversed. Of course, so long as the faction that maintains control of the apparatus of violence remains loyal to and incorporated within the network that is the state, the development of semi-autonomous police institutions may actually bolster the power of the state, especially in times of crisis when that power is challenged. Under these conditions, though it may require shifting power and resources to the criminal justice system at the expense of other state enterprises, The police may, in part because of their high level of independent organization, be effectively used by the dominant group, but if the police mutiny for either material or ideological reasons, or if they begin to make demands that the government cannot accommodate, police control of institutional resources may threaten the power of civil authorities. Under such conditions, the civil authorities will feel compelled to break the police unions for the sake of preserving their own position. Is there a genuine danger of the police becoming the dominant force in society, displacing the civilian authorities? A simple armed revolt would invite intervention at the state or federal level and would surely fail, but it is conceivable that the police could seize control of a local government if they proceeded with a combination of electoral and bully-boy tactics on the Rizzo and Giuliani model. For the police to seize control nationally, they would either need to be networked on that level. To a greater extent than they are presently, or else gain the assistance of some other institution, e.g. the military. Is this a problem for the ruling class? Might it, under certain conditions, be to their favor? Logically speaking, it is possible that police rule would favor the ruling class. For example, capitalists may feel that the cops are more willing or able to defend their interests than are the civilian authorities. This may especially be the case if the authorities are also are so divided as to threaten regime collapse, while the police retain the unity necessary to take control and keep order. The significance of the 1967 riots for the Detroit police strike is precisely this. The state is more tolerant of some rivals than others, more willing to accept some challenges to its power than others, and more ready to bargain with its long-term allies than to face defeat at the hands of immediate antagonists. As rebellions go, a police rebellion is particularly likely to gain the support of elites. For though police autonomy diminishes the power of the courts, civil government, and the rule of law vis-a-vis the police, it tends on the whole to preserve the inequalities extant in the status quo, including the inequalities inherent in these other institutions. Of course, a full force police state may make economic demands that prove inconvenient for business and would almost certainly hinder the fully autonomous operation of industry. But under certain conditions, especially those of social crisis, the ruling class may prefer the stability of police or military rule with all its accompanying constraints to the possibility of facing extinction in the course of revolution. It was just such considerations that led the middle and upper classes to support Franco in Spain and later Pinochet in Chile. More likely, however, is a soft coup by which police gradually gain a dominant position within the local government, though never becoming the only voice. The police could then form the center and base for a new kind of machine, building the necessary alliances with other social actors, but keeping the power in the station house rather than in the wards. Formally representative structures could remain in place while the police use their power to squash dissent engineer campaigns and shape policies, making the most of their practical monopoly on organized violence. This would seem the natural ideal of blue power, and while it may prove compatible to the needs of capitalism, it is an obvious threat to democracy. The police have been transformed from a wholly dependent tool of the political machines to an independent source of power. I noted in an earlier chapter that the development of modern police forces marked an unprecedented incursion on the part of the state into the lives of the citizenry, and signified in retrospect a clear step toward totalitarianism. As the police institution has evolved, it has become a major source of power not only for the state, but within the state. This achievement represents another step in the same direction. As the institutions of violence become more autonomous, they isolate themselves from democratic control. This is bad enough, surely, but as these same institutions gain influence over policy and social procedures, or social priorities, they inhibit the representative aspects of other parts of government. Blue power reduces the possibility of democracy. While the police were undergoing their metamorphosis, from instrument of the machines to bureaucratic apparatus of class rule to independent political force, they were simultaneously challenging democracy in other ways, and expanding their social influence in some surprising directions. The task of the police in preserving race and class hierarchies made them experts in suppressing dissent, and police departments quickly developed specializations in this regard. More recently, as we shall see, these same designs have led them to seek ever more involvement and greater shares of influence in the aspects of social life quite removed from law enforcement. And that is the end of Chapter 6. The next chapter is called Secret Police, Red Squads, and the Strategy of Permanent Repression.